Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this, what a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. All of the training is done with live ammunition. Every couple of years, there's always somebody who gets shot and, and, and killed, unfortunately, during this process. The argument for it being as realistic as possible, because you don't train for training, you train for reality. That was author and former SAS soldier Andy McNabb, and it's time for Good Adventures. First of all, Andy, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. What originally brought you to join the service, which is the context of much of your work and yeah. obviously the stories that you've shared? Well, it was it was trying to get out of juvenile detention. <laughs> Basically, yeah. I was I was sixteen. I was in what was called the Borstal system, and and at that time in the UK, the Borstal system was all about sorting out youth offenders. They, you know, the government of the day were going to get grip of us. So it was a thing called the short, sharp shock. And the idea was then they're going to put these kids into this ballstool system and scare them so much they won't reoffend. The system never worked. It, it, it all collapsed in, in the 80s. But I was landed up in, in that system. And what was happening at the UK at the time, there was a lot of organizations that were lobbying the government going, look, you know, this thing will not work. You, you know, you're actually brutalizing kids as opposed to you know, rehabilitating them. So there was a whole sort of movement where organizations would come into the ball stalls and try and get some social mobility basically going. And one of those groups was the army. So I watched, uh, well, all of us. So we, we watched this great recruitment film, you know, helicopter pilot and the doors off. And, you know, uh, they were flying over the beaches really low in Cyprus, waving at the girls, you know, all that. No idea where Cyprus was. Nobody knew where Cyprus was, but it looked great. You know, the summer's out and it was a beach. And the, the recruiting guy said, right, who wants to be a helicopter pilot in the army? And we, yeah, we all put our hands up because the deal was you went away for three days to a place in, in near Birmingham, which is the second city in the UK. And you'd done a three day selection to see where you would fit, you know, academic tests, physical tests. And it was very clear that none of us were going to become helicopter pilots. You know, we wouldn't get close enough to spit at one, let alone fly one. So I got a place in the infantry. And the deal was that you didn't go back into the ballstool system. You went home and because I was only 16, my parents had to sign a release form, but you stayed at home until you got your reporting date for the army. And um, so I went in just sort of about three months before my 17th birthday as a way of just getting out of ballstool. And, And at that time, the engagements were three, six and nine years. I thought I'd signed on for three years, but I joined what was called an infantry junior leaders battalion. 
And because of the extra investment they were putting in, they've given you a year's training as opposed to six months. Uh, they wanted six years out of you. So straight away, I thought, right, the army's really stitching me up here. Um, I actually quite liked it after a while, after about six or seven months, I quite liked it. Um, so I served for eight years in an infantry battalion. And uh, the war of choice at that time predominantly was uh, Northern Ireland, the conflict was, that was going on. So we used to do uh, what's called emergency tours every year. Um, between four or five months a year, we used to go over to Northern Ireland. And um, I thought it was great, actually, because you, you're not spending any money. You had to buy a bit of toothpaste, a bit of soap, and that was it. So you'd come back with maybe a thousand pounds or a huge amount of money for an 18 year old and get ripped off buying a second hand car, you know, all that sort of stuff going on, but really didn't care because you'd be getting ready for the next tour next year. So I was doing that for sort of four or five years. And at the end of it, I had no car, no money. So I thought, well, I better start switching on with this army business. So I eventually uh, became a platoon sergeant in the infantry and then went for selection with the special air service. And when you pass the selection, um, you lose all your ranking, you start again. So I became a private soldier, a trooper, and then served 10 years in the Special Air Service uh, and then became a, a sergeant within the Air Assault Troop of Special Air Service. 18 years, um, served in the military. One of the operations that was involved with what during that time was the operation called First Strike, which was the anti-narcotics war in Colombia, which was a CIA-funded uh, operation at the time. So when that conflict was being privatised, um, private military companies, Brits and the Americans, got the contracts. So myself and many others from you know, American Special Forces and British Special Forces got out and went to work in Colombia. And that's when I got approached about writing my very first book, which was Bravo Two Zero, which is basically a patrol radio call sign uh, about the, 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 the events, what happened uh, in, the, in the first Gulf War. Didn't know it at the time, but it was a, a linear story. That's where it started. That's where it's finished. And so I, I, I wrote it. I gave it to the publishers. They said, this is rubbish because it's more like a military patrol report. You know, we want to know about, you know, contents, uh, you know, sense of place, you know, what you're thinking. So I was really, I talked to read a book called Touching the Void by Joe Simpson. It's a very thin book, but it's about two mountain climbers and the, 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 the sort of dramas they got in. But actually, the way that Simpsons describes the sense of place, you know, the, you know, what it's like, you know, freezing cold hands, trying to tie knots or cut rope, that, that sort of thing. So I thought, right, OK, well, we've got to get on with it like that. Resubmitted the book, went to Colombia. Uh, the book just shut off around the world. And so they said, well, um, uh, do you fancy doing another book? And I thought, well, what do you think? Of course, you know, let's get into this, this writing business. Uh, and that's how it really started, really. And, and again, until about eight years ago, just sort of book by book. Do you want to do another book? Yeah, OK. And it sort of moved on from there. Um, got involved in, because of the Bravo 2 I got involved with working um, in, in Los Angeles on, in film. And in fact, the first film I've done was a film called Heat, uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. So there's a lot of, you know, downtown Los Angeles, automatic weapons, you know, what's there not to like, really? During that process, you know, started, you know, worked seven months on that film and then got other jobs in film and started to see how, if you like, production works rather than the, on the acting on, on the acting side. Um, and it sort of really has developed from there, really, you know, both sort of involved in TV and film. I'd love to go sort of that inception point when you first joined the service, 
how much of the world had you seen at that point and what were you hoping to see when you joined the service yeah um nothing of the world at all it's basically the uh, I was brought up on um, uh, what we call council states, so project housing, I suppose the American equivalent. And I knew nothing out of my um, uh, South London um, zip code, postcode. So I had no idea. Uh, I went, I'd been to the, uh, the seaside once, which was about three hours away, a place called Margate. I went there once. That was all very exciting when I was about nine. But that was really it. You know, there was no idea about what was over the horizon so as we're on what we call we were on the council so we we had a council house project housing social housing so therefore as far as i was concerned i've, I've cracked it because what i can do i can get a job now i can get a job as a, as a bus driver or a troop driver subway driver because they were the sort of jobs you could get the docks that were london docks were in decline that sort of traditional sort of jobs were in decline so i thought well you know i won't get a job in the, in the docks so i'll become a, a tube driver or a bus driver and because we're on the council i'll be eligible to get a council flat so i've cracked it and that was it and that was literally it and it wasn't until we got into the army I'd never been on an aircraft and so uh, literally at 17 um, my very first posting was in Gibraltar, which is you know, tip of southern Spain, the gateway to the Mediterranean. I didn't even know where it was. And it was just really exciting. So I got on this plane. I was on, on a plane, you know, all these weird things and understanding there's such a big world out there. There's so much out there. But, well, I'd never, well, I'd never seen it because actually I was partly to blame because I didn't want to see it. You know, I was, I was sort of just involved in, you know, where I was. Um, and, and even sort of North London, you know, north of the River Thames, I could have been in Scotland as far as I can say. I didn't have a clue. Not a clue. So that's such a unique experience for your first flight to be on a military aircraft. Yeah. Do you remember the model, the make, what you, what the experience yeah. was like? Yeah, it was a C-130. It was a C-130. Yeah, Hercules C-130. So, uh, you know, the ramp comes down and we all sit down. And you have to, they haven't got chairs. You know, you've got these sort of nylon webbing type things. Uh, and all of the, the equipment is in, in, the, in the hole, you know, in, in, in front of you. You know, you're sitting on the edge. And a lot of the, certainly the more experienced soldiers were you know, moaning about it because you're in the back of this thing and it's windy and it's noisy and it's really slow. It takes you for hours. I just thought it was fantastic. You know, I thought, well, I knew enough already just to shut up and don't go, well, what you're on about? Why are you moaning? And just sat there and, and kept on looking out the window, you know, and, and even the, like seeing coastlines, um, you know, leaving the UK, then, you know, crossing over into Europe, just looking at all the coastlines, you know, I'd never seen it before. So, and again, I thought when I got there, because, I, you know, right, we're going to the Mediterranean and I thought, great, it'll be hot in, in my naivety. But we went there in March, so it was raining and cold. So I thought, right, the army's ripping me off again, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it, it was just, very, very exciting. Very exciting. What was your first impression when you landed in that Gibraltar and you saw sort of the region and the people? I mean, yeah. how was how was the the tone of that visit and how was your interaction with the locals? It was one of those overseas postings where the, the Brits have been there since the 17th century you know there's you know historically they took it from the spanish and you know all this sort of stuff going on so there's always been a there's always been a, a garrison there there's bizarrely there's sort of you know red post boxes you know the traditional sort of uk stuff policemen are dressed the same all that sort of stuff um yeah obviously it's a spanish 
uh, well, it's on the Spanish mainland, you know. Um, and even with all those familiar things going on, you know, post boxes, policemen, you know, it still felt very, very exotic because there was a big naval dockyard there and there'd be loads of boats coming in and and, and one very exciting time. And again, I was, I was only sort of 17. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the carrier group, the Nimitz, uh, American aircraft carrier group came in the USS Nimitz and what was happening in the Marine Corps on the Nimitz, they, they would split in half and they would be like the onshore policemen for the, you know, the U S Navy. And, uh, so we got, well, we all got drunk and I'm 17. I got drunk really easy, but we all got drunk and we got one of these young U S Marines to get a tattoo on his arm of a British bulldog with a Union Jack waistcoat on, ripping apart the Stars and Stripe. And he went, yeah, I'll do that. I know, I know, I know. And we're all 17, 18, uh, you know, and even the, even the, you know, the, because of the big naval dockyards, it, you know, it's just full of tattoo artists. And even the guy doing the tattoo, he said, you sure you want this? <laughs> and, and, the, and the young Marine's like, yeah, you know, it's uh, the power of drink. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, wonder, <laughs> I, I know. I wonder how he tells that tale. I wonder what his you know what? story is. I know. It was a good day for us. I'm sure it was a bad day for him when he woke up and he had to look what was going on. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. My, my father's side's all naval. You know, right. Yeah. I'm familiar with that. And uh, yeah. Wow. yeah, they would they would have some stories about that for sure. Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistlepig Whiskey. They're American rice perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram, at Whistlepig Whiskey. The SAS, your experience with the SAS, your drive to join it, the process is, is, is seven months long. There's all these urban myths that you're specially selected. You're not. It's really boring. You go to your unit's administration office and fill in a form. It's as simple as that. Then what we call the regiment, special air service within sort of military parlance is, is, is known as the regiment. So they send you back a, a, a date when you can uh, come for one of their selections. They do two selections a year. One summer one, one winter one. And on average, it's about 220 people per selection and the first month of that is just purely about physical and mental stamina so they don't want to know your name you're given a color and a, and a number and every day for a month you'll go over um, a place in wales which is in the west of the uk the black mountains and the brecon beacons which are quite a hilly mountainous environment and every day you would do what's called a tab which is a, a tactical advance to battle so it's basically you've got a burger on backpack You'll be told of the weight every day and pound wise, it would be between 35 pounds and 58 pounds of different weights for each day. You've got a weapon and you don't know the route you're going to carry out and you don't know uh, how long it, uh, the cutoff is as well. So you get out of the, you know, a wagon drives up into the, the Black Mountains. You're there with your maps. You've got to navigate with maps and compasses, trying to work out where you are. You go to the instructor, calls out your name and number, and he says, right, where are you? You point it out on the map. He says, right, go to grid, gives you an eight-figure grid reference, which is 10 square metres on a, on, a, on a map. And he says, uh, which way are you going? You go, I'm going that way. And he says, well, you better get on with it. And you get to that checkpoint, and you get moved on, checkpoint to checkpoint, never knowing the route or the time. So it's all about that physical stamina. 
and, and, and mental uh, uh, stamina as well. So out of that, that first month, you do that every day. You do 31 days uh, on the hills. The last one is called Endurance, where it's uh, kilometers, 64 kilometers over, over the mountains. And depending on the, the weather conditions, uh, you've got to do it within 20 or 24 hours. Uh, the winter time is normally about 20 hours. Summer, uh, sorry, winter time is normally about 24 hours. Summertime is normally about 20. And, and again, it's checkpoint, checkpoint, checkpoint. Um, what it's designed to do is get rid of everybody who think they're going to be James Bond, you know, all that, all the fantasy guys, guys who haven't prepared enough or haven't got that physical or, or mental stamina. So you then start doing a lot of weapons modules. So myself, I'm in the infantry. Okay, I'm handling weapons every day. So the new weapon systems that they're training us on, you know, I can get the hang of it. Some guys can't, you know, if they're technical people, because anybody can, can apply, anybody. From any country, we have Americans, Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, anybody can apply. But what happens, it's not so much about you, how good you look, it's how quickly you can learn. And it's your ability to learn. So you can get, you know, guys, I don't know, they've been mending tanks for the last three years or whatever. Them getting in the weapon systems, they're not going to look good as somebody from the infantry, but they might land up better because they've got the ability to learn what's new. So demolitions, all these things. And sometimes people, not my selection, but sometimes people will then be taken off. So, for instance, uh, on the selection before ours, there was a, a Marine corporal clearly excellent should be good at all the weapon systems which he was against uh, what we call remi an electrical engineer guy uh, out of one of the logistics regiments at the beginning you might look at these two people and think well the, the electrical um, engineer guy he doesn't he's, he's no good but actually as we started using more technical new bits of kit the marine found it very difficult whereas this guy adapted so the marine was taken off at that stage so the next big phase then after these modules is then you go to the jungle for a month and you spend 31 days under the canopy learning how the regiment works in small four-man groups so you uh, you've got the i've never been to the jungle before um so you've got to learn how to live in the jungle and you know just trying to make yourself as, as comfortable as possible and learning how a small team can work together and support each other. All of the training is done with live ammunition. Every couple of years, there's always somebody who gets shot and, and, and killed, unfortunately, during this process. The argument for it being as realistic as possible, because you don't train for training, you train for reality. So it's, you know, and it focuses everybody's mind. This is a very close environment. So everybody's like firing and moving and doing everything closed up and seeing if not only you're capable of doing that, but also at the same time, you're capable of not only being on top of your game, your own personal game, but making sure everybody else in your patrol is. And what the instructors are looking at is not only can you perform in a very closed environment, but can you perform in a, a small group without supervision? Because there's no way to tell you, you know, in the traditional sense, the military, you've got your SART major and all that stuff. You haven't got all that. What you've got is your mission. And that's the most important. That's the only thing that exists. So are you capable of carrying that out and at the same time supporting everybody else? Some people um, uh, can't handle the claustrophobic atmosphere of, of a rainforest. Some people can't work under direction. Excellent soldiers, but unless they get direction, they can't do it. You know, give them a pack and tell them to run for 10 miles, they'll do it. Getting them to do it themselves, they're waiting for an order. You know, so there's not that. So out of my initial 220 there was 24 of us that passed that point 
when we went to the jungle with 24, there was eight that passed after that. And the staff, the, the instructors, what they're asked, you're never told how good or bad you're doing in the jungle. It's all about your, your best efforts. So the, the instructors who came from uh, the four Sabre squadrons, the fighting squadrons, what they're asked is, would you have that person in your patrol? So if the major after the after the, the you know come out of the jungle, you still don't know if you passed or failed when you come out of the jungle. So if the majority are saying yes, you're through. So there's there's a form of democracy because the reality is, if you pass selection, these training staff they'll be back in the saber squad, and you actually might be in their patrol. So everybody's got a vested interest in in making sure that works. So there was eight of us who, that passed that, and then we, we you know there's a lot more um, more modules, you know, more demolitions, more sort of um, uh, uh, combat medics, yeah, all the sort of stuff. Because when you pass selection, you go straight into a saber squadron. You might be straight on operations, so you've got to have the bases of what you need to know. And then it's up to the Sabre squadrons to, to give you the rest. So the requirement during selection comes from those fight, uh, four fighting squadrons. So I say, we want these guys to know this, that, this, that by the time they get in. So the next phase where you can fail is, is, is right at the end, which is um, the combat survival phase. So you learn, you know, all the traditional stuff, you know, survival, traps you know uh, 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 finding food identifying different sort of you know plant life that sort of stuff that traditional survival and then what happens is the combat survival uh, side goes in and part of that is sitting there for a week in the headquarters at, at hereford uh, which is uh, on the welsh border which is the headquarters of the, of the regiment listening to people who have been prisoners held against their will whether it's prisoners of war political prisoners, financial gain, you know, criminality, people have been held hostage, those sort of people, they would come in and talk about their experiences. The argument is, is because we're known as prone to capture troops, like same as your special forces air crew, known as prone to capture. So the idea is you listen to these people. If there's one thing you get out of the week from somebody that helps you if you're captured, it's all worth it. It's worth sitting there for a week, listening to, to some of these people. And for me, it was a U.S. Marine Corps Phantom pilot off, uh, of, of an aircraft carrier who got shot down during the Vietnam War. So he was on his second tour of 80 missions. So he's on his 77th mission. And literally, the way he describes it, I'm, I'm there, I'm drinking coffee, eating donuts, volleyball, I get, you know, I get into my Phantom, I fly off for a couple of hours, go and bomb something, come back, back to the volleyball and donuts. 77th mission on his second tour, he gets shot down and six years in solitary confinement. Every you know, major bone was broken during, you know, during the, the interrogations and, and the, and the uh, mistreatment. Uh, he had to try and self-heal. He was held in solitary confinement. What he said, the thing what helped me when, when I became a prisoner in, in Iraq was that just accept what they're going to do to you physically you can't do anything about that just accept that because what you want to focus on is keeping your integrity of your mind and what he done 
was build a house and you know no idea how to build a house but he just you know he just you know imagined it um and and then started to repaint it after a couple of years and and you know and he's um well when, when i saw him he was um you know he had no hair no teeth no muscle mass on his buttocks because it just been beaten away with um uh, frayed uh, bamboos over the years and um by the sounds of it he had lots of crystals now hanging from his house in hawaii somewhere you know but he's alive he's alive so if you you know if you're still breathing you know, you're still winning. So that really helped me. So it was once I got through the combat survival, because the next part of that is you go on the run for two weeks and you have infantry companies after you with dogs and, um, and they've got a big incentive because if they get you, they get two weeks extra leave. So they're really up for catching you. But it is designed after two weeks when you're on the run to get captured and go through uh, interrogations. So you know like all countries we have people who are trained interrogators so they're getting realistic training we're getting it and it's the only part of selection where the regiment doesn't have to say because it's the the people who conduct interrogation say whether the, the you know you conducted yourself correctly or not after that you get what's called badged uh you become a member of special air service uh if you pass so there was eight of us who who, who finally got through from the 120 uh, 220 and then what happens is that you lose all your rank. So no matter where you come from and what your rank is or your position, um, well, you do, you lose it all and you become a trooper, a private soldier in one of the four fighting squadrons. Um, so I was a platoon sergeant, lose my rank, and I went into a, a, an air assault troop um, in B Squadron, which was obviously the second squadron of the, uh, of the of the four fighting troops. And then over that 10 years, and then, you know, go through the promotion to become that, that troop sergeant. Wow, what, a, what an experience. And yeah, that what a process. What, you know, far more than I expected. I'd heard yeah. certain pieces of it, but wow, very um, compounding and uh, intensive. So what was the rainforest that you guys were sent to when you were doing that part of the training? Uh, we were in, uh, in Borneo. So, uh, and again, you know, historically we have, you know, defense agreements. Normally it would be going into uh, Borneo or Belize where we have, you know, military presence. Um, so for, for you know, whatever, for whatever reason we went to Borneo, which was better because you've got a lot of primary rainforest there, you know, um, you know the, which was amazing because the, the canopy stops the sunlight coming down. Um, so it's it's a bit clearer than it would be in Belize, where you've got more sunlight that can penetrate, so you've got more undergrowth. And when you're doing that sort of escape tactics while they're trying to chase you down over the course of those two weeks, where is that happening, and how do you, how do you sort of negotiate that personally? Yeah, it, it's basically what happens. It's based on a an escape and evasion that happened during the Second World War across Europe by two. Uh, soldiers who were captured um, and so all they had was their their you know their their normal uniforms battle dress on a great coat the big thick overcoat they would wear and boots with no laces so what happens is you're dressed exactly the same so it's not as if you can blend in anywhere because you've got to keep hiding because you you dress like you're out of the second world war and these are old military uniforms with no with no laces um, no waterproofs that, you know, you're just in what you're in. And what you're trying to do is what they did was travel from point to point to try and liaise with the different resistant groups as they cross Europe, trying to get to the, to, to the French coast. So what would happen, you would be given an RV that you then had to navigate to. You had no map. 
Um, you had already made your homemade compass. So you're trying to navigate using a homemade compass and literally hiding up in the daytime where people are looking for you. And then you'd have to move at night, you know, as tactically as possible, yet still make the distance to make the agent RV, the agent uh, rendezvous point to be given the next point of where you're going. So what was happening was that you, you, as, you're, as you're moving along, you try and get there before first light. It might take two or three days to get where you needed to be. This again was in Wales, which is quite a desolate sort of area within the UK. Lots of mountains, um, you know, forestry blocks, that sort of thing. And try and get to that point without getting captured. If you made the point at night, you'd have to stay close and hide up in the daytime while everybody, you know, everybody's looking at you at night and in, in day anyway, helicopters, dogs, that sort of stuff. So it's trying to move uh, for for, for th- that sort of checkpoint to checkpoint, exactly as these guys did. They, all the way, I th- there was somewhere in Czechoslovakia or something, these two guys, and actually made it to the French coast. Amazing. Still dressed in their uniforms. They didn't want to get shot as spies. They escaped to a prisoner war camp in, che- in Czechoslovakia. That's incredible. Yeah, amazing. Uh- I mean, you described how the rainforest is a unique experience for a lot of people, I'm sure, through that training process. Can you sort of take me into what you were feeling and what that location felt like to you, sort of knowing you'd be there for an extended period of time during these arduous circumstances? Yeah. Well, at first, I was quite apprehensive about it because, in effect, you know, you're being tested. So, and you're never, you know, again, you're never told how good or bad you're doing. So, you, you turn up. In, in the jungle i'd never been there before obviously we trained and prepared and we got the gear and all all that sort of stuff so once we got into the uh, the, the 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 base um uh, in, in Brute, uh, borneo the, the island it's a country called brunei and once we got into the base we're starting to prepare yet there was a sense of excitement again very much like I had when I was on the C-130 going to Gibraltar because I was in this you know, totally new environment. And so what I decided to do was just try and make the best of it, no matter what, because you know, I had no, no control of, of what was going to happen. All I've got to do is my best efforts. So one of the, the, the enduring sort of visions in my head and, and still now is that first time in, in a, you know, your little four-man patrol in a, in a small helicopter, and of course, all the doors are off and all that, you know, because of the, the, the weather. But it's actually flying over the canopy, and there is nothing else but green canopy and the mists. And, you know, I'm sure we've all seen it on, on TV and films. And all of a sudden, it looked like little sort of heads of broccoli, really, at, at that height. And thinking, well, you know what? I've had... I've had that. I can see it. I've seen it. So whatever happens, happens. But at least I've got to take in these views because once you're under the canopy, that's it. You're in this semi-darkness, you know, for the rest of the, the rest of the time. So there was this form of excitement, really, of 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 taking in something that was totally alien. Will I ever see it again? Well, if I stay in a regiment, if I get in, yeah. But if not, I've got to take it in. So there was, and it was then really from that jungle period that have decided they've just got to take in these experiences because they may be the first and last time. Do you remember seeing any particular animals or creatures or elements that you didn't really recognize? And, and what were you guys eating during this time? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, every, all, all sorts. If it crawls, it's their sort of thing, you know, and then the whole idea is trying to keep them off you. The, the um, uh, just you know, even everything's bigger. The ants are bigger. The spiders are bigger. Everything's bigger. We think we're quite 
sort of tactical and quiet and we try and be quiet and in, in, in the rainforest, all that sort of stuff that we were learning. But actually to an animal, you know, we might as well be a big foghorn. So all the big stuff uh, keeps away, you know, they're, they're pretty smart. Um, but obviously, you know, um, the, you know, all the, all the insects uh, and, you know, used to get to the point where sometimes, certainly with the larger ants bringing in, you know, all the leaf and everything, just like divert them just to see them come back. And, you know, you can play all those those tricks with them, which is it was quite good. Um, but we were eating a mixture, really, of um, uh, uh, ration packs, you now jungle ration packs, lots of water in the jungle. I now think that the jungle is the, is the best environment to fight in, without a doubt. You've got everything there. You know, you're not wet, you're not cold, and you're not hungry. So, um, they, but at that time, we'd be ration packs. But then part of that month, we had a period where we would have to live off what, what the jungle provided, you know. And again, we had a, like a small combat survival period during that time. Um, and of course, we had all the training and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, as opposed to catching you know, meat, if you want, you know, obviously Westerners were all into meat, all that sort of stuff, but there's just so much food out there, you know, because it's continuously raining and the soil's great and uh, there's so much food there. It's unreal. So uh, then we have a period where we still got to operate and do our training, but what we had to do was then use the, you know, the, the, the surroundings. So lots of roots, lots of, uh, you know, lots of root food. And there's a, there's a, there's a small tree there. Um, that when you, you, you put it up, it's like uh, the bulb is like a sweet, soft cabbage. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I don't know why people are not, you know, supermarkets are not selling it. It's fantastic. Beautiful. How are your sleeps? How did you rest? Were you able to get much sleep during you, this uh, yeah. period? Yeah, I think after the first few days, where you know, because it, it's you you sleep in a, in, a, in in within the sort of rainforest. You, you've just got two lots of kit. You got your wet kit, you got your dry kit. So when you, when you're going to sleep, what you're trying to do is keep your dry kit dry, because in the morning uh, when you get it, you've got to put your dry kit away. You've got to get your wet kit on again. Um, and no matter how warm it is, it always feels wet and miserable. Um, so once you've got that dry kit on and you've done all your administrate you know because you've got to look after your feet in a big way because they're always wet you know all that sort of stuff you can sort yourself out after a while it takes two or three days because of the amount of noise that goes on in, in a you know certainly at night in a in, in a rainforest you know whether it's it's animal life you know where you've got monkeys going mad and you know all that sort of stuff um uh even to sort of the the insects as well because they're all making over your poncho they're making noise as they're crawling about but Actually, because the training is quite hard, um, it took three or four days, and then that was it. Sleep time was sleep. Yeah, absolutely. So lastly, <clears throat> I know you bring a lot of your personal experiences. You know, I'm sure it colors your writing, and you bring that information into your writing. Were there any parts of your selection process that made it either verbatim or was largely inspired um, into what you wrote about in one of your books? Or yeah, I, precisely. It, yeah, I wrote a nonfiction book uh, after the uh, Bravo to Zero experience, and, and basically the, the selection process—it was called a media action. The book, the 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 selection process was part of it because it was talking about how you know basically uh, you know that that process and and, and what happened when I joined the uh, the Saber Squadron. Because literally, I was I was I think I was badged on a on a on a Thursday, and that Tuesday 
I went back to Southeast Asia because the the, the squadron were on operations um, in the jungle anyway. So I, I like, like literally turned up as the new boy you know brand new jungle boots and brand new stuff they've been in there for about six weeks you know with the old big sort of beards all that sort of stuff um so the 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 if you like the process i've written about but actually the the what i learned during that not during the time because i was really concentrating on, on trying to pass selection but what you know looking back on it what i've learned quite a lot is about people so not so much about the people that were in the regiment but the people who were trying to get in and, and why they didn't um and again you know it's not about what you know it's what they can fill you up with the information um so i, I try to use some of those characteristics in the amalgams of of, of characters um that, that i use whether you know whatever franchise really what did it feel like to to get badged great um uh, amazing actually it's uh and really sort of really uneventful you know physically so in that sense you know the, the because within the regiment there's no um uh there's no sort of typical military rank structure you know people call each other by their their you know by their names or their nicknames nobody wears rank because uh, it's all about sort of self-discipline so you know if somebody if you've got the squadron sergeant major going mate what i want you to do is you know go over there and pick this up and take it over there he's telling you He's going. You pick that up, and get up. But he doesn't need to do that because you know you're. You know you, you, clearly, if you don't want to do it, you don't want to be there. So, um, uh, so it's no parade or anything. So we went to the the, the regimental sergeant major's office, who's the, the head NCO. So it's quite an important sort of uh, job. And again, we're all out of the military, so we didn't know because normally you'd stand to attention when RSM's talking. So, but nobody really knew what to do. So we're all sort of standing there. And this guy come out and basically just said, he said, right, congratulations. Um, when you get this Sabre Squadrons, remember, like, you've got two eyes, two ears and one mouth. Keep the mouth closed, look and listen. That's all, I, you know, that's all I'm going to say. So you're going to go in to see the commanding officer now and he's going to badge you. And we thought, okay. So we, again, we didn't know whether to march into the office, stand to attention. So the commanding officer's at his desk and he's got the, the, the beige berries, you know, the, 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 with a cap badge on, all that sort of stuff, going to get badged. And they're all lined up. And he literally picked them up and threw them like Frisbee's ass. And so we sort of catched them. And then he said, look, remember it, it's harder to keep than to get um congratulations and you know off you go and that was it and we sort of all shuffled out thinking okay right we're now badged really big moment in our lives but uh, uh it was like a bit of an anticlimax in that way and then of, uh, yeah and again there was guys from the squadrons who picked us up so there was two of us that went to b squadron and went up to the you know the squadron interest room what we call the you know the the, the squadron sort of headquarter area and they said right well nobody's here to say hello to you, uh, welcome. Uh, we've got uh, you're on a flight, uh, and you'll be in the jungle on Tuesday with a squadron. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> and that was it. And that was it. It was really weird. That's amazing. I hear that when he throws it to you, if you drop it, they kick you. That's right it. Out. You're That's out. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're out. Yeah. That's a Not final test. The reflexes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Cheers, man. Oh, absolutely. A pleasure to chat with you. The sun came up. The world began to shake. Exposing all my own mistakes If I could do anything 